Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Dr. Robin, how are you? Listen, I woke up at 724 this morning, and I know I that you're not... I don't, I don't, I don't even know who this is. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know who I'm on a podcast with. Well, I had to go to bed at 9 last night. We were watching Age of Ultron, and um, I was just... We got to the, like, the middle of it. I'm like, I have a 9 a.m. call in the morning. I've got to go to bed because I need my beauty rest, you know? Right. We know. But I did the stairs this morning. Good. And um, now, basically, I'm ready to go back to bed because I'm a sloth. Well, well, but but I mean, you know, for our listeners, I mean, if they follow you on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook, they know that you're um, really intentionally trying to, you know, understand the way your body works and moves right now. Yeah. And so you have changed a little bit about your day to day and yeah. how you are being real intentional about moving and, um, you know, trying to do. Um, even just little things like getting outside and walking a yeah. couple times a day. And yeah. um, and so you you joke that you are a sloth and you might be a sloth when you're not doing the stairs or walking your neighborhood, but you are an, you are an active sloth right now. I, yes, I'm an active sloth. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm the kind of sloth that crosses the road. Right, right. <laughs> um. Yeah, I um, I have been moving, and I got out the ukulele, and I tuned the ukulele this weekend, and I played a little bit, and I'm very excited that we're going to start our band. And we are not going to start a band. And we're going to love- talk about this on the podcast at some point. That's going to be like our December episode about <laughs> like the new songs that we're singing and playing. <laughs> yes, that is never going to happen, but I love that you have big dreams for us. <laughs> I love that you do. How are you? What what's going on in your world? I'm good. I'm good. So for our podcast listeners that have been following this journey, um, we believe that we have sold our home. Yes. We believe our house is under contract and we're actually able to move um, into this other place that we um, have fallen in love with. And so that has been a, a journey that has caused me significant amounts of anxiety over the last five yes. or six weeks. And it looks as if fingers crossed that we are going to be able to, to, uh, to make the move and, and, um, head over to a, another neighborhood here yeah. in Chattanooga. So that I mean, has I, been, I mean, I'm really excited about this because it means that I don't have to walk up the fucking stairs, 27 or 37 or 47 stairs that you have. Well, you, you're doing the stairs now though. You're I different when I come there because it just, the oh. incline is just so much. <laughs> you're so high maintenance. <laughs> you're so high maintenance. But yes, you're right. Um, now your bedroom will be on the third floor, so you will still you will still have to climb stairs to sleep. 
Um, but hopefully, you know, after the number of bourbons we've had, when you stay over, that won't be a problem. You know, you, you, well, you can you can crawl up them, or I don't know, um, sit down on the stairs and just scoot your butt right, up right one at a time. Right, um, right. I'm sure that I'm sure you'll get creative on that. Yeah. Well, this will be good practice for me to be. I, I will continue to move. I won't. I won't be. Um, just sedentary when I visit with you. So when I go take my siesta, it would be, I'm incentivized to go take my siesta at your new right. house. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so the world continues to be an absolute shit show. Um, yes. We have completed the RNC, the Republic National Convention. Um, the uh, temperature and and anxiety level in Portland is through the roof. Um, we're continuing to see, you know, violence in Kenosha. And, um, you know, for some reason, the man that, you know, sits in the White House thinks that going there is a, is a good idea this week, mm-hmm. um, which I can only imagine is going to be a disaster. Right. Um, and so we're, I mean, I, you know, I, I, sometimes I feel like we're living, um, that movie Groundhog Day. Oh yeah. Bill Murray, where, you know, we wake up and it's just another day and Sonny and Cher are singing on the clock radio and, mm-hmm. oh, look, it's another day, another day that the world's on fire, another day that we're being led by, um, you know, someone who, um, who, who doesn't have leadership as one of the qualities that he possesses. So, um, but we're really lucky today. We have, um, we have a great guest with us. We're thrilled, um, to welcome, um, Qasem Rashid. Um, Qasem is a candidate for the first district in Virginia, um, and is, uh, man who has centered his life around um, leadership and and doing work in the world that is meaningful. Um, he is a proud American Muslim mm-hmm. and has written some really amazing um, work on what it is like to live as a Muslim in America. Um, but more than that, you know, he's a he's a guy who is not ashamed to put his body in the street mm-hmm. is not afraid to get his hands dirty in the work, which is what we're all about. Mm-hmm. And we are really lucky that Kasim is joining us today on the activist theology podcast. Yeah. You know, I just want to let listeners know that I first met um, Kasim um, several years ago when I was in my doctoral program, we were on a TV show talking about, sort of the death of religion. And I was the only transgender person, the only queer person, I think, on that panel. And I felt such hospitality from this Muslim man. And I thought, oh, wow, maybe maybe we can be in conversation. And, you know, because I'm all about bridging the divides and, and figuring out how our different faith practices can actually uh, build a tapestry of hope. And so I'm super stoked to have Qasem on today. Qasem, welcome. We are really thrilled that you're with us today. We, um, 
We are are lucky to have you, and we'd love for you to share a little bit with our listeners about how you uh, came to join us and um, what kind of work you're all about in the world right now. Well, well thank you, Anna and, and Robin, for having me. Uh, Robin, so good to reconnect after all these years. It's yeah. been far too long, but I, I remember that um, that recording uh, well. And you know, my only disappointment was that we didn't get to do another one. Mm, um, yeah, I, I had hopes that we'd able, you know, build upon that. I know there were talks about that, and it just yeah. kind of fell apart, unfortunately. But I, I recall that conversation, and uh, I found it to be extraordinarily meaningful. I, I, I'm glad to, to to hear that you, all these years later, you feel the same way. Mm, uh, yeah, because I think those are the kinds of bridges that we need to build to form that more perfect union that we're all absolutely yes. And, and, and yes. I'll probably to meet you for the first time and. And hopefully uh, our paths get to cross soon once you um, once this pandemic lifts and you're able to, to safely travel back to Virginia. To, to, to Likewise, yeah, yeah. So I shared with Kasim earlier. I am a I am a I was born and raised in Virginia's tenth district, which is adjacent to the district that um, Kasim is is um running to uh to win this this year and so um we have we have a lot in common at least from a geographic roots standpoint um well it's such a privilege to share some time with both of you today and, and with all of our listeners uh you know my story here um uh, begins when i immigrated here with my family from pakistan um back when i was about four years old uh, about the age of uh, my wife aisha and i's youngest daughter now and, uh, you know, leaving a country that uh, you're born in is never easy, but we left in, in significant part escaping religious persecution, which, Robin, you, you might recall we spoke about uh, yeah. in our, way back when. Yeah. And you know, our, our parents are teachers. My, my siblings and our parents are teachers. And so for them, it was all about being involved and engaged. And this element of service to humanity is something that was really ingrained in us from the get-go. And our parents use a really strong word that if you're not you know, spending your time, dedicating your time to serving those around you, you're wasting your life. Um, and it sounds like a harsh word, but it was extraordinarily important for them to ingrain that in us because at the end of the day, um, you know, service to others is how we make that more perfect union, how we create peace in society. And that's really what they were focused on. You know, how do we create uh, a world where the next generation can live uh, better and healthier than the previous generation? I think as, 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 as parents, as leaders, as mentors, that's what we want for the next generation, right? I mean, regardless of our differentiating factors, I think we can all agree uh, we want there to be more peace and stability and unity going forward. Yeah, um, right. Certainly struggled. You know, when my brother enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, we were a military family, uh, but mm. struggled, lived in Section 8 housing, needed food stamps to get by, been working since I was 15. Uh, but, you know, out of that struggle, um, for a number of reasons, out of that struggle, uh, a lot of good has come. You know, you could call it the grace of God Almighty. You can you can talk about neighbors uh, and, and family and friends, the blessings of this country. You know, today all three of my siblings are successful in the business world, and I'm a human rights lawyer. And you know, my journey in human rights law was really uh, ignited, I think, by my parents, but really, you know, fulfilled with my wife Aisha recommending this is, I think, where you need to go. And so went to University of Richmond School of Law, go fighters, if there's any spiders listening. Um, <laughs> you know, fun, fun fact, fun fact that the, the Richmond uh, is the only uh, university in the country with spiders as our mascot. Wow. Um, 
So uh, I'm a spider, um, which my son is a Spider-Man junkie. So he was thrilled to, to learn yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, you know, it's at Richmond Law is really where I got invested in the human rights element. I had some phenomenal mentors and teachers, uh, professors who had studied under Oliver Hill um, and, and other, you know, juggernauts of the civil rights era. Um, got involved with the Virginia Poverty Law Center, their Office of Domestic and Sexual Violence. That's pro bono work I do until this day. And I've spent the last decade working uh, intimately with nonprofit organizations on healthcare access, education access, criminal justice reform, climate justice. And this run for office really, you know, it culminates into this one simple fact that um, it's time to transform that advocacy into policy. You know, when you're an advocate, and both of you know this as advocates, that you have the satisfaction and fulfillment of being able to uh, support an individual or, or a cause, um, you know, through your personal capacity. But you also begin to realize that there are systemic injustices, systemic, uh, uh, you know, broken policies that need to be uh, either revamped or reformed. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was recognizing that as, as much as I can advocate, there are broken and unjust policies harming people that need to be reformed. And so this mm-hmm. is really about taking my work in the trenches and transforming it into better policy. I, I don't see this election as an election about Qasim. I see this as a referendum on our country nationwide. What kind of country do we want? Do we want a nation that truly is fighting to be a more perfect union or do we want to regress uh, as we have been, fortunately? Um, mm. And I choose the former and I'm, I'm confident and believe that the majority of Americans, regardless of their background, choose the former. And, uh, and that's what we're fighting for. And I think we're going to have um, not only a successful day on November 3rd, but uh, we'll begin to uh, strengthen our country to, to the path that it's supposed to be on. You know, I love how you talk about what kind of country do we want to be, because I often talk about and I would love to hear your thoughts about this, Kasim, is I I talk about what kind of humans do we want to be with one another? And as an immigrant, as a Muslim, as a, uh, you know, as a father, as a partner, you know, I I um I followed you on Twitter since we were on that TV show. And so I I often see you um tweeting about being with your family um being a father and so i feel really curious if we can broaden not just what kind of country do we want to be but what kind of humans do we want to be and and can you help us you know because probably most of our listeners are progressive liberal christians and those who have disaffected from the American church. Um, So they're spiritual, but not religious. I wonder if you could help us talk about um, humanity from your faith perspective and help us understand how Islam has shaped um, your own theological anthropology and, and the ways that you are in the world and the ways that you want this, this community of humanity to become better. Oh, beautiful question, uh, Robin. And, and there's so much I can speak to this. Um, I, I can think of really three really quick examples that come to mind that really kind of exemplify and create a framework. Um, you know, when when the Quran, the Holy Scripture of Muslims, talks about God, um, it refers to God as Lord of all the worlds um, and Lord of all creation. And there's no asterisk. There's no limitation there. 
um, it, it's a declaration that the, the, the Lord that we serve um, is a Lord that has created every living being. And it is our responsibility as the, the single greatest purpose of a Muslim is to attain nearness to God by serving humanity. And I want to emphasize that. There's no such thing as nearness to God without serving humanity as the forefront in everything you do. And, and repeatedly, the Quran refers to all humanity, all creation, um, not, not men, not women, not any specific gender, but to all creation. And, and I emphasize that because so often, you know, regardless of the faith, uh, fundament, fundamentalists in any faith try to become exclusionary. They try to exclude God from a particular group or a demographic. And what the Quran repeatedly calls us to recognize is that God is the God of all creation. Um, the second thing is I'm, I'm reminded of a very famous incident during the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he and his companions were uh, sitting and a funeral procession went by. And the Prophet immediately stood up out of respect for the funeral procession. And some of his companions said to him that, oh, Prophet, you know, don't you realize that this is the funeral of a Jewish person, Im implying that they were somehow less than. And mm. the Prophet angrily responded that was he not a human? Did he not have a soul? And, and so, again, creating a very clear line of demarcation that the, the qualification for a human is to be a human. There's no, there's no differentiating factor in the value, the inherent dignity that every person has. And he talked about the soul, right? It, it like, did, did this person not have a soul? The answer is yes, they had a soul, uh, which every person does. Then it is your obligation to show that respect and, and compassion. And, and then I'm also reminded of a very famous saying of the fourth caliph, uh, Khalifa Ali, where he said that uh, all people are either uh, your uh, brothers in faith or your siblings in humanity. Mm. And, and so again, this, this assertion that um, there can be any exclusionary treatment in how we, we, we work is, uh, is just contradicted. In fact, I, I can think of a fourth example that I'll, I'll share just because it's so prudent is yeah. when the, when the Quran talks about the three levels of good, um, it, it, in Arabic is Adal, Esan, and Itaizu, Gurba. And, and Adal means justice. The justice is the, is the most minimum form of good. That at the mm -hmm. very minimum, you need to uphold justice in all affairs when dealing with, uh, with other folks. Um, and then the next level is Esan, which means, uh, you should be, uh, eased. You should, you know, even if someone does an injustice to you, you shouldn't merely respond with justice, but you should be an ease upon them and try to make their life easier and better because you don't know what struggle they may be going through. And then it goes further uh, with Itaiz al-Qurba, which uh, indicates that you should treat all humanity with the same love and compassion you treat your own flesh and blood, your own kith and kin. Uh, yeah. The same way a parent will get up at you know three in the morning to, to take care of their child because their child is crying, that's a level of compassion that we are called to have with all humanity. That's what we should be rising to, 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 to ascend to uh, as, as our purpose. So when I think about, you know, how we interact with one another, um, sure, we can disagree. Sure, we can have a different worldview. Um, but none of that is to take away from the fact that every person has their inherent dignity and we must protect their rights and their dignity uh, with, with every fiber of our being.
So I love, I'm so grateful that you shared um, the, the, the four pieces that you shared, Kasim. I'm struck by the, you know, dichotomy of the words that you shared with us and, you know, and then my own personal understanding of the Christian faith and our, um, you know, very similar um, recognition of one another as humans, as kin, as beloved um, in the, you know, before the eyes of God. And yet, you know, you are very intentionally running to be a part of a government that when it was established, intentionally left others behind. Um, you know, we are a part of a, of, of a, a democracy um, that does has, have an asterisk or should have an asterisk beside it because of the ways that we have both in law and in, uh, you know, moral engagement left others at the wayside and not just left them behind, but intentionally sought to create law and order to minimize their being, to minimize their humanity. How do you reconcile um, the, the, what is a true and good understanding of your faith and who we are to be as humans with a recognition that we are a part of a system here in America that has done in many ways the exact opposite. Uh, Anna, that's something that I um, spend a lot of time thinking about um, because I am reminded that where we are now is not by mere accident. It's deliberate. It has been systemic and generational. Um, right. You know, everything from the, the genocide, which was the original sin of this country, to the slavery, which was the, you know, uh, you know right on the heels of genocide and, and worked in concurrence, um, to, uh, you know, Jim Crow laws, to mass incarceration, the war on drugs, the marginalization of the LGBTQ community, religious discrimination. I mean, you know, you can go on and on. Um, right. But, but I also recognize that, you know, one of the things that I, I really uh, admire and appreciate about what the framers did, they, they did get many things wrong, but one thing they got right was this aspect of forming a more perfect union. Um, when I was in law school, one of my professors was Tim Kaine, who's a U.S. senator in Virginia now. And, and, and the class that we had was the future of equality. And it really studied kind of where we were as a country when we were founded, how this notion of equality developed over time and where it's going to go uh, in the coming decades and years. And um, I, I think it's important to reflect, especially for progressives, because progressives are inherently always, in, in my view, looking to elevate the conversation and figure out how can we become that more perfect union in a, in a way that is really revolutionary. Um, and it's important, I think, to, to kind of center ourselves and remember that where we are now, because it's been generational, it's not going to be fixed with just one election or, you know, one cycle or, or one president. 
Um, no one here is Thanos with the Infinity Stones. Uh, and they're going to snap their fingers <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, we're going to solve these problems. It, it will take time. And, and I don't mean that to excuse delays. I, I mean that to light a fire to let folks know that it will be systemic uh, in how we work to organize and develop solutions to these problems. And part of that comes with reconciling and uh, take a reckoning with the history that has gotten us here. Um, this is one reason why I, I support studying a need for reparations for Black Americans and for Native Americans. Um, this is this is why you know when we talk about how do we how do we solve some of these issues impacting us, um, we need to first recognize what ignited them uh, in the first. You know how, how do we so solve mass incarceration? Well, you know it, it stemmed from this this war on crime or war on drugs. That was in many ways concocted, and and you know to recognize that means that you recognize that mistakes were made by Republicans and Democrats mm -hmm. in upholding justice right. um, uh, to to resolve these issues. I think so often we get so caught up in partisan politics that we forget that both sides have made you know really major mistakes and errors. So um, it's it's not merely education. You know, uh, Professor Ibram Kendi talks about this in Stamp from the Beginning. It's not merely education because the unjust policies we have now were designed by some really educated people to be maliciously obtrusive and and uh, and uh, regressive. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, leading with a sense of compassion and accountability and reckoning with our history um, and knowing that we have been given a gift at this day and age to recognize the injustices of the past and fight to make that more perfect union that our constitution calls us to fight for. I love that. I was thinking today, and I, I wonder what y'all think about this. I was getting my ice for my cold brew, and I was thinking, you know, our current president is not the first president on the GOP side to make mistakes. The GOP has made mistakes in the past, but why... Why now are are we experiencing um, the unveiling that we are experiencing? Because as you say, Kasim, both sides have made mistakes. You know, I I tend to think the GOP has no moral compass, but the Democrats are not innocent. Um, why now do you think we are seeing things more clearly? Um, because there's been, you know, the war on crime. Um, I, th I think back to the Reagan days, um, I, I mass incarceration. I think back to the Clinton days, you know, why now are things so clearer? Do you think? Well, a, a couple of reasons. And, and one, um, I want to add on to something you said when we talk, or commenting on my earlier comments about both sides have made mistakes. I want to make sure, you know, viewers or listeners don't perceive that to mean that we're doing an equivalency. Um, you know, there, right. there's really a difference between, you know, some of the mistakes under the Obama administration versus, you know, separating families and caging children um, where they're sexually abused and, and, and some even killed, right? There's, there's, there's a massive difference. I, I want to make sure we're not uh, falling into that, uh, you know, erroneous false comparison, but right. still recognizing that, you know, we're all human and, and we could have done a better job. Um, I, I think there's an awakening for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one, 
it's human nature that when we are put under pressure um, in new ways, we begin to realize more aggressively and more assertively that there has to be a better response. Um, you know, and, and, and sometimes when people go through trauma, when a country goes through trauma, um, for whatever reason, they, um, if they do things right, they emerge stronger. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, post-World War II Germany um, and, and the, the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, and this was a country that, um, you know, after the atrocity of the Holocaust, they had a reckoning. And, and Germany now is recognized on a worldwide scale as a thriving democracy. Um, certainly isn't perfect by any stretch, but it's no comparison now versus, you know, uh, Nazi Germany, even, even Japan, right. you know, pre, pre, uh, World War II versus now, you see a massive difference in many respects. And, and I'm hoping that what we've suffered through, uh, by, by no means is it as, you know, again, I want to be careful not to compare scars because every scar is, is justified in its own right. But, you know, we've suffered what nearly 190,000 deaths this year. Um, we, you know, a devastation to our economy at 30 million people on the brink of eviction. Um, hopefully I think people have, have realized that, that, you know, this is not acceptable and that we can and must do better. Um, I, I, I noticed, um, a few weeks ago, uh, y'all had, uh, Brittany Packman on, mm-hmm. um, and she was talking about how the number one election issue uh, is voter suppression and voter intimidation and, and disenfranchisement. And I, I couldn't agree with her more um, because this is, if you look at the, the dictator's handbook, um, this is the carbon copy playbook of how they uh, consolidate power, marginalize communities, and um, take away the ability to, of people to have a voice. Um, you know, what we need to do at this point is keep all hands on deck, uh, recognize that this is not a moment. This is a movement. There's two movements at play here. One movement to uphold that justice and compassion and another movement to suppress um, the ability of the American people to have a seat at the table. And we need to do everything we possibly can. Um, uh, as, as, as Brittany, uh, Ms. Packman, you know, reminds us, to ensure that everyone has access to vote and that we can channel the frustration and I'll even say anger and rage that we feel into the, uh, you know, voting booths and bring about some kind of meaningful reform. Uh, but my genuine fear is that if we are not able to successfully turn the tide through the ballot box this November, I don't know if we'll have an election uh, in 2024 uh, the yeah. way we we had a free and fair election in the past. Um, right. And that would be concerning to me. I'm, I'm struck by um, the frankness that you bring to the work and, and your, I mean, you are um, what I would consider to be unashamed in the way you feel about injustice, the work you've done to combat you know, domestic and sexual violence, the, you know, your naming of the prison industrial complex as problematic. Um, I'd love to know, are, are you, have you received any pushback or any commentary from your 
Muslim siblings regarding your um, platform or the way that you have chosen to answer to injustices in the world? Um, and, and I ask that because, you know, as a, as a Christian, as someone who, you know, follows the, the teachings and the commandments of Jesus, you know, oftentimes other Christians will say to me, um, well, that's all well and good, but I don't think you're really doing what the, what our Christian faith, what our God is asking of you. Um, and I wonder, are, are there similar, are there similar uh, camps in 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 your in your faith tradition, Kasim, that that also provide that same kind of pushback, or are you finding that your Muslim siblings are um, as supportive of your your platform and the work you're doing in the world um, as as you and your family are? Well, um, I think anytime we delve into any faith or or group you're, you're going to find that there's not a monolith. Right. Of um, course. Yeah. You know, there's immense diversity. And so certainly, um, there's some, you know, uh, of my fellow Muslims who are extraordinarily supportive and some who are extraordinarily critical. Um, mm. and, and, you know, the, the diversity is, uh, as, as wide and, um, and, and, and varied as, as you can imagine. Um, mm. my response, to, to the criticisms has simply been this, that we are not running for a religious office um, where I am, uh, you know, bound to give some kind of like a religious edict on some action. Uh, I'm running uh, to serve as a public servant in a secular office. And um, that mandates that my responsibility is to uphold, you know, justice uh, according to a secular standard, according to a democratic republic standard. And, and what I'll also point out to them that if they really want to bring theology and religion into this, um, the, the, the model of government that Islam is explicitly clear upon is one that is based on uh, a secular government. Um, the religion of Islam itself condemns and rejects a theocratic government. Um, and, and this is like a little known fact because uh, people just tend to ignore this. Uh, but 1,200 years before the U.S. Constitution, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, wrote and ratified with the Muslims and Jews of Medina the Charter of Medina, the Constitution of Medina. This was a secular constitution that guaranteed universal religious freedom, uh, universal equal access under the law. Uh, and absolute justice in, in all these affairs. And so my point to these Muslims who are critical, or really to any person of faith who is critical, is, is, is that, look, from an Islamic perspective, um, not only does it mandate a separation of religion and state, but it gives you a very practical example of how to do it. Exactly. And so... Um, and, and so for those, you know, who, are, and, and let's just, I'm going to be very transparent and, and raw about this because I, that's just the only way I know how to be. Um, there are certainly some who are critical that, well, you know, why do you support uh, LGBTQ equality? Um, uh, because, you know, Islam says that this is immoral or wrong. And I'm like, well, look, that, 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 
that may be your interpretation, but my very clear understanding is that we need to ensure every person has equal access under the law and equal dignity under the law. And, and you know, what you cannot show me, because it doesn't exist, is anything in Islam that says that members of the LGBTQ community should have less than equal rights and equal justice under the law. Because there's nothing that indicates that at all. On the contrary, it is explicitly clear, um, repeatedly, that every human being, regardless of differentiating factor, regardless of faith or no faith, has complete and equal access under the law. And that's what I'm bound to. Um, so there's nothing that will get me to compromise that because that is how we uphold that justice and that dignity. Um, so, you know, I, I'm going to continue to get those criticisms. I welcome them because I welcome a robust dialogue. Um, but, but what I'm not at all worried about is me reconciling my faith with my responsibility to serve uh, it, it, the public in a manner where I ensure that every single person that I serve, regardless of who they are, um, uh, regardless of their faith or no faith, um, that every single person will absolutely, in my view, have equal access under the law. And, and that's what I will continue to fight for. I love that. Brava, I, brava. I, I, I feel like we need more religious difference in our public offices because I, I feel like so much of our policies are informed by what I would call toxic theology and draw from a very um, particular orientation to Christianity. And if we had more religious difference in in our public offices, maybe we wouldn't be so fraught with um, religious extremism at, at a policy level. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, again, you know, one of the things that I really admire about our constitution is that it, it specifically uh, bans any kind of religious test to get into yeah. office, which necessarily uh, invites religious diversity. Now, it necessarily says that there is no one right kind of religion to serve in, in public office. It's, it's about upholding that equal justice. And so for me, I, I, I personally have no qualms at all with people who, uh, you know, at their core may have very conservative religious beliefs. I've got zero problem with that um, because it, it's, it's not my place to dictate to them what their religion should be or how they should worship or what they should believe. Or, or, or for me to, to enforce upon them um, what is the right religion or the right interpretation, you know? And, and you know, the same way as, as people on the left side of the spectrum don't want religion mixing with state, when you talk to folks on the right, they obviously don't want state mixing with religion. And so right. for me, uh, uh, when, when conservatives say to me that, well, you know, I still hold these, you know, very conservative religious views, my answer to them is, great, more power to you, my concern is, um, are you going to impose those conservative views on legislation and, and mm -hmm. equal access? Because if you are, that's where I draw a line, because now you're imposing your religion on somebody else. But right. if, you are, if you recognize that the purpose of a true democracy, a true secular government, is that you're allowed to have your very conservative views, and, and by all means, embrace them. But... You, you don't have the right 
to impose those on on the government and vice versa the government can't force uh, uh or force is the wrong word um the the government's uh uh standard here um should also be to allow you to have equal access as well so it, it, mm-hmm. it, it ensures that every single person can live their true self and has equal access without infringing upon the other person's right um mm-hmm. and, and and i think that kind of a society where people can believe as they want to or not want to um but then ensure that every other person has equal access under the law that's the kind of life that i want to create and, and in that kind of an environment i think the best ideas went out on their own and you don't need to yeah uh, worry about you know extremism and fundamentalism because every person gets equal access uh, under yeah. the law i love that so one of the things that robin and i often talk about on this podcast is the influence of supremacy culture white supremacy culture on both the work that we're trying to do um to to better to better the the world and the way that we see in real time um the the undergirdings of uh supremacist values changing or influencing the landscape and how we're looking at it i mean you know we've the most recent real example is um the response to the um the response to this you know 17 year old um you know white terrorist in kenosha who felt empowered to respond to um unrest with uh the you know the shooting and, and assassination of of uh activists. I wonder how you have found, or if you have found, um, this understanding of, of supremacist culture and, and ideology to influence the, the way that you're, you're platformed or the way that um, your community and, and the district that you're running for is is working and being in the world. Are you are you finding the same um, this this same infiltration of of supremacist value where you are? Like like Robin and I feel like we're we're finding where we are. So the, the short answer is is yes and. And, and I want to be uh, clear on what that means. Um, oftentimes, uh, people think racism is, you know, uh, a KKK hood uh, and a burning cross. Right. Um, and, and short of that, it's not racism. Um, and, and obviously, you know, that's certainly one form of racism, but it manifests in different ways. Um, and, and one of the most sinister ways it manifests is the structural or institutional racism. Um, so, for example, um, when we talk about things like redlining, um, a, a lot of folks haven't heard that term, um, but it is qu- quintessentially white supremacy uh, put into uh, extraordinarily devastating legislative action. So redlining, a, an official policy of the US government where they would literally just draw a red line around black neighborhoods and say, we're not going to allow banks to give uh, black people loans 
to purchase home. Or if we do, it's going to be at a ridiculous interest rate that's going to almost guarantee that they default on their loan. Uh, right. Meanwhile, uh, white families across the street, we're going to give them fantastic loans at fantastic rates and help them refinance, help them avoid bankruptcy, help them avoid foreclosure. Um, and so when you look at a society where the number one way people build wealth is through real estate, through, through home ownership, when you de deny an entire population based on their skin color the uh, right to own a home, then you're creating a systemic uh, white supremacist mindset. Um, it's no accident that from the time that the Civil Rights Act was signed until now, black wealth has increased only 1%. Um, right. right now, the median white family's wealth is $147,000. The median black family's wealth is $3,600. Um, uh, that, that's a result of these kinds of legacies. And, and we're seeing it again today. For example, uh, uh, digital redlining has become the new reality where right. know, broadband internet access is an absolute utility. It's an absolute necessity, especially right. now. You know, our, our kids are right. school today and they're, they're you know, uh, doing it remotely from home. Fortunately, we have broadband, but a lot of my district does not. And we see, and you know, there's a great uh, story in, in the Baltimore uh, Sun about this, uh, about how broadband is laid out in predominantly white and affluent neighborhoods, but in black, uh, Hispanic, and lower income communities, it's not. And so again, you're creating a class system built on these uh, legacies of white supremacy that uh, are just devastating our communities. So, uh, and, and we see that really in every, we see that in the criminal justice system where black and white Americans uh, use drugs at about the same rate. Um, but black Americans are charged and arrested at a rate of uh, six to nine times more. Their sentences are 15 to 20% longer. We see it in the healthcare system. Black women suffer uh, maternal fatality and black children suffer uh, infant fatality at a rate of three times that of the general population. Um, we, we see that in employment with, uh, with a lack of representation of, uh, of black and brown uh, 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 employees at uh, the executive levels of uh, major corporations. Um, and so, you know, all this is to say uh, uh, that these are real and systemic issues. And uh, unfortunately, critics um, will balk at this and say, oh, well, you're just being... Uh, you know, a snowflake or, you know, you're, you're just being, um, you know, you, you obviously hate America. Uh, you're just calling everyone racist. And, and I think that's, that's the key point that they don't seem to want to understand. This is not about calling people racist. This is about acknowledging that the institutions we've set up facilitate uh, an unjust system. And yes. so there's no one individual person who needs to be racist here. Um, at all. This is about recognizing that due to the systemic injustices, this is a problem bigger than any one individual, and it requires legislative and systemic correction that, again, won't happen with a magical Thanos snap of the finger. It will take time, but we need to first acknowledge the problem exists. We're going to solve it. Mm. I love that. I, 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 and I don't know if you remember this story, but I think it was um, our friend Shannon telling us that it going back to the broadband stuff that if Comcast services one house in an area, then Comcast can say, yeah, broadband's available in that area, but that house 
actually may have had to pay a lot of money to get broadband wired in. And so this this thing about access to broadband, like it's not a given. Right. right. You know, um, that there are, because of the way gentrification happens, there are wealthier people who move into lower income neighborhoods and then pay to get fiber installed or some sort of broadband internet. And, and now all of a sudden it looks like that neighborhood has broadband. When actually just that house does. Right. (laughs) Exactly. 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 Yeah. And, and, and and to make it even more sinister, um, because you're exactly right, uh, is that, now they prevent competition. Um, right. they, they prevent, uh, you know, you know, Verizon or, or you know, uh, or Cox or any of the other, um, you know, broadband internet companies or providers from being able to enter this entire community because one house somehow right. has has brought. Right. It, it's an absolute scam. Uh, it's 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 a modern day monopoly. Uh, it's a racket. And uh, it's devastating to our rural communities. And, and, yeah. um, and until and unless we can elevate our rural communities with, by giving them 21st century tools, we are relegating our children, our small businesses, our healthcare providers, our farmers uh, to living in, in 1950. Uh, because, you know, without high speed broadband internet access nowadays, um, you, you can't uh, you can't do any of that. I, I was at a rural county here, King William, Virginia, just a couple of days ago. I had an, an older gentleman uh, come to me uh, and say, "Look, I you know I, I'm retired. If I'm lucky, I have 20 years left in my life. Because I'm just going to be honest about it. If I'm lucky, I have 20 years left. Um, I've I've waited 13 years under this congressman to get us broadband internet access, and every year he promises the same thing, and every year he fails to deliver." Uh, I can't wait another 10 years uh, or 12 years to get broadband internet. I, I would like to at least enjoy my retirement with some decency and some ability to speak to my grandkids, uh, speak to my family, you know, uh, across the country. I can't even do that right now. Um, mm. and, and that's just, you know, uh, the tip of the iceberg of, of how small businesses are shutting down. They're not able to make a profit. Um, folks aren't able to make a livelihood. So this is really, for me, a, again, a human rights issue. If you're going to take away a basic necessity of people to earn a living, that's a human rights issue. And, mm. and we, we need to invest in this aggressively as a utility to make sure that uh, our neighbors in rural America or in lower income communities that have been victims to broadband uh, redlining are able to access this basic necessity um, in a way that uh, they can thrive and flourish just like the rest of us. Yeah. Kasim, this yeah. has been just a, an amazing conversation and we're really grateful yeah. that you took some time out of your day and out of this campaign to share both with us and with our listeners kind of how um, how your work and your faith are are influencing um, your day to day and also are you know setting you apart for um, what I hope to be a very successful uh, run for um the house. I want to make sure that our folks know how to be in contact with you, know how to follow you. Could you share with everybody kind of what the best way for people to be in touch with you is? 
Yeah, no, uh, and thank you again, uh, Robin and Anna, for this really uh, thoughtful opportunity to collaborate with uh, each of you. Uh, yeah. Highly respect the work that, that you both have done for many years, and it's so great to, to continue to build something positive with you. Um, I'm very easy to find. Uh, my, my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram uh, and website are all Qasim Rashid, Q-A-S-I-M-R-A-S-H-I-D. And, um, you know, reach out. We're pretty accessible. And, uh, you know, for us, this campaign, again, is really a referendum on the kind of country we want. And we're building a people-powered campaign. We don't take corporate money. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really are focused on um, exemplifying, you know, a government by, of, and for the people. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about what's going to come. I love that. And what I really love about this conversation is that we've really taken ideas and connected the dots for people, especially in rural America, which is so, so much of our country. So thank you so much for helping us connect the dots. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. I look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you. Well, friends, we are grateful that you've joined us for another week of the Activist Theology podcast. Um, Again, follow Robin and I on all the socials at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. And we will be back with you next week. In the meantime, um, you all know the work that needs to be done. You recognize the urgency of the now. And our only desire for you is to figure out how you get your hands dirty in this work and how you continue to move the dial towards a more liberative and just filled society and community where you find yourselves. Dr. Robin, thanks for today. We're, uh, yeah, we're having good conversations and I'm grateful. We are. Let's get free y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, Activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs> <laughs>